2: Welcome back to See Also. I'm Brody Lancaster. I'm Kate Jinks. And this is a special poodle ep of See Also. If you're a new listener, you might not know um, why these are called poodle episodes. I like the mystery of it. You don't want to explain it? No, I think we can. Okay. Well, originally we kind of toyed with calling them mini episodes. And Kate, as a owner of a toy poodle, she said it's not a mini, it's a toy. So now they're just... Poodle episodes.
1: Yeah, they were toy poodle episodes and now they're just poodles. Now they're just poodles. Welcome to the poodle, everybody. (laughs) Uh, So we've covered, you know, some really favourite films of ours over... We've only done a couple of poodles Mm -hmm. in our short time together, BL. Uh, But the kind of the thing that strings them together is that they are things that we... Always find ourselves recommending, or they have some kind of—I don't know—we have some deep love or affection, or yeah, it's almost unexplainable.
2: Like the movie we're about to talk about, I was watching a few months ago, and you were like, "Oh, duh, poodle," and I was like, "Yeah, of course, poodle." Like
1: yeah, poodle. The the
2: criteria for being a poodle is a gut feeling. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, like duh. Yeah, it's like when. Uh, your friend wrote in about doing fab stains, and it was like, yeah, duh. Obviously. Why Not to your friend, yeah. but like to each other. <laughs> to like, each other. Oh, yeah, of course. Why don't we think of that? Anyway, today's is such a good film. Came out in 2001. It's Ghost World, directed by Terry Zwigoff, And we have a lot of weird trivia about this film <laughs> because it's the exact kind of film that you have a lot of weird trivia for. Like that sort of. Almost its purpose
2: Yes, it's like there's there's layers upon layers Also the fact that it was adapted from um, a graphic novel Which is also as beloved as the film Means that there are just, you know, Ghost World runs very deep
1: It really does run deep Okay, well let's do like a very quick synopsis to get us going before we can do our true deep dives and we haven't actually spoken about this or <laughs> who knows who knows what we're going to get into uh, over the next hour but okay so ghost world was directed by terry Zwigoff, based on the dan Clowes' beloved cult graphic novel and it was co-written by Zwigoff and Klaus. And it's a window into the friendship between two teen girls, Enid, played by Thora Birch and Rebecca, Scalia Hansen. They are true outsiders. And over the summer, this follows their uh, journeys together after their high school graduation as their allegiance kind of first and foremost to each other does start to wane. And these are like caustic, counterculture-obsessed girls that I think you either identify with or you greatly fear, Or maybe you don't even notice A bit of both (laughs) And they're like terminally cynical They spend their time walking around their really run-of-the-mill town uh, Making these deadpan barbs about the basicness of its locals They find delight in anyone or anything that sort of exists outside of the status quo Or troubles it a bit and they're working out what to do next rebecca's got a clearer path than enid uh and enid has to go through this excruciating remedial art class taught by iliana douglas in order to get her high school diploma and one day enid and rebecca prank this lonely guy behind a personal ad that they think is a big dork played by steve buscemi and then soon the hermetic record collector seymour enters their cool misanthropic world And unsettles this kind of folie de friendship that they've got going on for good.
2: I mean, okay, let's start with our histories with the film. Um, Tell me about the first time you saw Ghost World.
1: I saw it when it first came out, I was really excited about it Uh, I saw it when I was in New York and had a great experience watching it by myself How perfectly, how perfectly Ghost World of me Absolutely While my like former flame was working at a very cult video store in Alphabet City And I was (laughs) taking myself off to see Ghost World late at night. Like it was a funny, funny time of my life. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I had read the Dan Clowes novel. Um, I read it. I've still got my um, copy of it with me here. I got in in 1998 when I was like 17. I was in my last year of high school, so it could not have come at a better time in my life. I was feeling extremely Enid, Coleslaw and (laughs) and Rebecca at that time. What about you? I, well, so
2: it came, the film came out when I was 11. um, And I think it probably would have taken a couple of years for it to arrive at the um, art house section of the Bundaberg blockbuster video.
1: I can't believe you had an art
2: house section. That's great. The art house section, from my memory, it had um, in Lady Is Girl With A Dragon Tattoo. Okay, But in, as a child, I remember it having, um, clerks and like very few, it was a, it was one shelf Mm -hmm. and my sisters, you know, we'd disperse and we'd always come back to the same movies. Uh, and my sister, I remember once yelling out, stop trying to be art house (laughs) at me across. Oh my God. I'm stealing that. Across the blockbuster video. Because I just I'd go there and I just hope that there was something new, which feel also feels now that I say it kind of Enid and Rebecca, are just <laughs> like trying to find something a little bit out of the ordinary. Yes.
1: Oh, my God. You was totally Enid Coleslawing it up in yeah, Bundy.
2: Yeah. And I think my first in my first viewing, I think I didn't get it yet. I think I was too young for it. And I was How like, "How old
1: do you reckon you were when you saw it?" Twelve then? or
2: thirteen, I'd oh, yes, say. Yes, yeah, yes. I was big John Hughesy, like my mm. my my teenagers that I loved watching in movies were a little more pleasant I think (laughs) and I think Enid and Rebecca kind of scared me a little bit like I didn't Mm -hmm. I didn't get them um and then in later years like when I went to university I met my best friend Anton who was just deeply obsessed with the comic and graphic novels kind of like more broadly and um he introduced me to like a lot of things including like Dan Klaus, Adrian Tomine, um you know filmmakers and people who I still like am obsessed with today, and I think with like fresh perspective um and also just like being a bit older, mm. I came to really really adore ghost world, yeah, yeah, it's just so good, and you know you I went through that phase of like. Um, got really obsessed with Harvey Pekar and American Splendor. And (laughs) so like sought out like Robert Crumb and that Mm. documentary that Terry Zweigoff also directed. So that world of like underground comics seemed very like, um, you know, kind of like depraved and like, in alluring to me. Um, I was just thinking, like the same way that your um, Carol Poodle episode with Chelsea from Christmas time was kind of specifically about Todd Haynes's Carol and not Patricia Highsmith's, like important distinction. I feel like we might zigzag as we already have between you know Terry Zwigoff's. Ghost World and Dan Klaus's. although Patricia Highsmith didn't write the screenplay for Carol, so
1: no, but she wasn't as
2: close to it.
1: Yeah, but there is, you know, there are a lot of differences between what became the graphic novel. Also, a note that um, Dan Clouse really hates the term graphic novel. Hates. And uh, he despises it and he has called the term a vulgar marketing sobriquet sobriquet sure how do we say that not sure
2: uh one of those you read it and don't ever say out yeah.
1: loud. and then he uh god enid would kill me for that um but he also <laughs> supplied like alternatives for what they could be called like narroglyphic picto assemblages <laughs> so thanks dan Klaus, for that rolls off the tongue
2: he's such an enid i mean like I'm sure we'll get into it more deeply, but the fact that Dan Klaus or Daniel Klaus and Ina Coleslaw are anagrams of one another, like Mm. he's, he's really projected so much of himself into that character. And I think it almost caught him by surprise how much she reflected him. Um, I also have a note that he, he refers to, you know, the idea of becoming famous for writing ghost world and his, you know, other works and winning awards and things like these. And people describing him as like a famous cartoonist. He said well, it's kind of like being the world's most famous badminton player. <laughs> <laughs> like, what does it really mean in terms of popularity or status? I love that caustic
1: fucker. Like, he's so good. Yeah, yeah. Him and Zwygoff, match made in heaven. Truly, those underground little fellas. Did you see Terry Zwygoff's uh, art school confidential?
2: Yes, yes. I think after Ghost World, I was kind of. Like once I got Ghost World, I was like, okay, how do I find more of this? Mm, yeah, yeah.
1: And it starred, oh god, what's is it? Max Minghella, N- Nick from Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because when he was in Handmaid's Tale, I was like, I know this kid from somewhere. I know those eyebrows
2: and that little facial mole.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: and the the tampon in a teacup
1: yes. that appears
2: in the art school scene in Ghost World isn't is it kind of from Art School Confidential, right? Like the comic. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's like a weird crossover there.
1: Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So it's a yeah. This is like a hard one to start, even. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk. Let's let's talk cast. Okay. Like, that seems like a a way we can get into this. Yes.
2: Scarlett Johansson, sixteen year old,
1: the deep deep voice. Oh yeah. She's so perfect. She's and really she's uh, just has this cool delivery in this film where. You can see her kind of, like, she is sort of one with Enid's, you know, complete and utter disdain for society, Mm. but she has something, like, she kind of knows that she's going to have to give in a little bit at some point, or to become an adult, she's going to have to, like, not fuck up the system from the inside like the guy in the zine <laughs> <Yeah. scene laughs> shop. But, you know, like that, you know, she's gonna have to take part in society essentially.
2: Yeah, it's almost like Rebecca's um vibe is like, yeah, this is this is like fun for us to do now, but we're gonna have to conform eventually. And that's where they're truly at odds because Enid's kind of her entire vibe is that there's no reason to that they can keep seeking out like silliness and like cynicism or irony or you know kitsch Mm. their whole lives um also like two years later she was that like hot sad wife in lost in translation which is so bizarre whoa only two years between these two films
1: oh my god i did not I guess because Ghost World, like the novel, the graphic novel was such a huge part of my teenage years that I I put Ghost World back in there, even though I know it came out in 2001. Yeah. Oh, wow.
2: Yeah. So she was, I think, still a teenager when she filmed Lost in Translation.
1: Yeah. And she, because I'd seen her in. And that was the
2: start of sexy Scarlett Johansson, you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: I'd seen her in uh, that Cohen Brothers film, The Man Who Wasn't There. Oh yeah, and she was really young. She played this like girl called Birdie, mm. and I think that was the first time I ever saw her in anything. Yeah, but yeah, she's so good in this.
2: She's so good. She has this moment, (laughs) she has this moment, I'm getting to get off track immediately. You know, at the end when she's so excited about the apartment that she's found for them to move into. Yes. uh And it's like so beautiful and sweet and deeply sad because you know that everything that is exciting to her about this like normal adult step is like painful for enid to experience constricting
1: for enid
2: yeah and depressing there's a moment where she walks into the kitchen and she's like check this out and she pulls down an ironing board that flips out of the wall (laughs) years later i watched he's just not that into you Uh where she plays like va va voom a wooga bombshell (laughs) And there's a scene where she does the exact same thing. No way. She pulls out an ironing board that comes out of the wall of an apartment and she like marvels at it. And I remember taking screenshots of it and putting them on like my Twitter, my Facebook being like, this is a thi- This is an important moment in pop culture for us to recognize <laughs> here. It's like when I went back and watched camp nowhere and there's a scene between Andrew Keegan who went on to found a cult and Alison Mack who went on to be in Nexium, and they're like, sharing a bracelet or a necklace back and forth. And I was like, this is something, this is something.
1: (laughs) I didn't realize that Alison Mack was in Nexium. I feel like maybe that's her repressed memory. Oh my God.
2: Yeah. She got branded. She's with, um. She
1: got branded? Surely. Didn't they all? No, you had to be part of a special, uh, subset of
2: the cult. Or maybe she was like into the branding. Mm. Anyway. Um, side note <laughs> So this like This ironing board connection I was like this is a thing And I would search the internet for it And I would just find my own tweet from years ago But apparently recently Someone shared this in the Red Scare podcast Reddit uh-huh. And it blew up It did the numbers as, mm. as they'd say You're
1: ahead of your time And
2: I was like that's deeply offensive to me But also, finally, my people (laughs) are there on Reddit, I guess. Yeah, on the Red Scare podcast
1: (laughs) on Reddit. How
2: do you feel about yourself? I'm sad. (laughs) Um, Imagine what um, Enid and Rebecca would say about Red Scare. Anyway, um, that brings us to Thora Birch.
1: Oh, yeah. She's she's just so perfectly cast in this. So perfect. Her delivery is so consistently dour and just uh, you can just see... The pent up emotion within her that she delivers this like full fuck society, you know, kind of vibe, a vibe I know deeply, very, very well, I might say, (laughs) but you can see that. I oh, Like she's really struggling with her emotions And trying to keep them at bay And really trying to find her place And I think she's like truly worried That there is no place for her Particularly mm. when her friendship with Rebecca Scarlett Johansson starts to wane mm. um, Yeah, but she's just, she's just great The opening shot of her dancing to Chan Chanho The Muhammad Rafi song Like is just it's so good. Like it really sets up for kind of who she is and what she's about.
2: Yeah. Like the fact that she's alone and she's not performing for anyone. Um, you know, there's no one watching and she's still that person.
1: Yeah. What I really love about these characters, I think and particularly um, Thora Birch's in a coleslaw is that they do like, they're kind of trying things on. They're like working themselves out, but Particularly Enid has this very true love of like these counterculture objects, but also she loves this kind of music, these tapes, these films. The objects in her house are like these weird little abject things, like goofy gas it's like it's really truly the stuff I've still got in my home, yeah, um, but just this i you don't really get to see teenage girls like truly feeling for objects or people and things that kind of exist outside of the normal teenage stuff that people are meant to like.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's no like kind of aesthetic to it.
1: No, she's like a fan of this crazy shit.
2: Yeah. I love it. And like stuff that you can't put a finger on. It's not like she, you know, there's this kind of like running gag through the film about like blues, you know, blues rock. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, you know, in the late 90s when there was this movement around like, um, you know, it's like the limp biscuit of uh, like <laughs> Ghost World, yes. you know, um, blues hammer. Yeah, like speed blues. Yeah. And the idea of like, like that's a trend and like being a hipster is a trend that has like defined sounds and looks and everything else. Whereas like for Enid, it's like uh, if I put on like I think Dan Klaus has this quote where he talks about like being the kind of person who can't just put on a hat and go out for the day. he's like, what kind of person am I if I wear this hat? and like that's <laughs> so Enid, you it's know so like Enid. she can't just wear a leather jacket. she has to understand the kind of like era of punk that she's referencing yeah um or like representing when she wears that leather jacket.
1: yeah, I think that is such a like I don't know, like it's a part of your life, like it's a particular time in your life and this film is and the novel is very much about a very specific time period. I don't, like I, I used to work in a vintage store for a long time and I would really do that every single day when I was choosing what to wear to work. Like I would have these very elaborate backstories of my character for each – I sound like an absolute psycho. But no, like, I love oh. – A little Enid in Glebe. (laughs) (laughs) I think part of the reason... Worse, I was in Bondi then.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think part of the reason why I found Ghost World a little bit inaccessible, maybe besides the fact that I was 12, um, is perhaps because of my relationship to Thora Birch before then. You know, like I grew up on Hocus Pocus, but to a greater extent I grew up on Now and Then, where she of the foursome, she is was the little girl who grew up to be, um, Melanie Griffiths and was a glamazon and, you know, was like stuffing her bra with pudding and practicing her Oscars acceptance speeches. Um, and had a little white cat on her dresser, you know, like she, she wanted to be like, just like you, be, just like me. She wanted to be like being glamorous and like known. And I think realizing that she was, Enid, it was kind of like an unsettling moment for mm. me. I was like, what happened to Teeny?"
1: Yeah, right, because I didn't grow up with that film at all. Yeah. I only saw it a couple of years ago for the first time. I guess I knew her from, like, I'd seen Hocus Pocus, of course, and American Splendor had come out by then. American Beauty. American Beauty. Yeah. American Splendor is a very different movie that's yeah. that to see also. Although they're all of the same. <laughs> they're all related. <laughs> they're all related. Yeah, I think... When I first read it, uh, in particular, I found it very, like, I really, I felt like it really got me, but it was also very aspirational in a way that now when I watch the film back as like a 42 year old woman, I'm like, wow, I see how reckless your, like Enid's behavior is, how she doesn't understand that her actions have any kind of consequences or, the relationship she's building, or the, the kinds of things that she's rolling her eyes at, that uh, you know, are actually people just trying to have their normal lives, yeah, et cetera, like it's very, it has com- like a, as an adult viewing it, it has really shifted to me,
2: yeah, yeah. there's like a selective empathy with Enid, right? like she she can be so cruel and harsh. Maybe harsh is a better word because she's she's ultimately like a kind person. And I think that she's like looking for something like good in everything. Um, But when something doesn't please her or when something, she finds something like cringe, um, she lashes out. And oftentimes it is these at people who she thinks are like her safety zone, like Rebecca cops Mm. a lot of it, you know. Oh,
1: Rebecca cops a lot of it. Yeah. There's this one really telling scene in the film. There's such a small scene, but I think about it all the time whenever anyone says this word, uh, when they're at the Wowsville Diner, which is so hilarious, Yeah. and a girl from their class, I can't remember her name, she comes up and she describes something as being Malora. Yeah, (laughs) Malora, and she describes the uh, (laughs) diner as being Funky. Funky And then Scarlett Johansson mocks her very much afterwards It's really great and funny But I think it's also that scene where um, Melora is asking them what they're doing And they're looking for a house And she says, well, where are you moving? And Enid says, well, we're, I don't know, we're looking And Rebecca comes in and says, downtown Like she throws her the bone Like she's, yeah. Rebecca is that one yeah. Kind of being like God, don't be such a bitch about it. Like, yeah. she's just asking an okay question. She's making small talk. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. We don't have to be her best friend. And But then at the same time, she's mim- like mocking her. Yeah.
2: There's this element, you brought up the 50s diner. That Dan Klaus talks about in, um, this book I've got called the Dan Klaus reader, which I'll probably reference a million times in this episode. It's so good. It's mostly about ghost world, but it's also about a lot of his other stuff. Um, and there's just this long ranging interview with him about the comic and the film It's mostly about the comic, um, And he talks about the fifties diner as an example of like what Enid and Rebecca, especially Enid find like charming is that people get it wrong. You know, like the fifties diner, it isn't like clean and crisp and like a perfect little time capsule. You know, it's like people are fucked up. their hairstyles are wrong. There might be like a digital clock on the wall or something, you know, they find that like really earnest and like Enid's very sentimental about it. Um, And it's, he kind of draws a, a comparison between if they walked into one that perfectly represented the 50s, they would hate that. But mm-hmm. the fact that something gets it a little bit wrong is a little bit offbeat. They're like, oh, my God, it's so sweet. It's so genuinely charming to them. They have this yeah. real, like, sentimentality about them. Yeah, it's
1: like nostalgia gone wrong.
2: yeah. And they they say the line, like, it's not so bad, it's good. It's like, it's so bad, it went past good and back to bad again. <laughs> and, like, that's the thing they like. That's what they're seeking out.
1: Yeah. I, I read this great interview with uh, Terry Zwigoff where he said that Enid has a bigger imagination than what she's offered. I yeah. I that is such a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. Like, she's incredibly curious, but she is just sort of feels stymied by this... They don't even live in like they've got like they live in a place big enough to have a downtown, have a 50s diner. Yeah, (laughs) it's like a Nashville or something, but it's It's like LA, it's like the outer suburbs of California.
2: Yeah, I was also in the book, like Dan Klaus is talking about how his last, um, the last thing he wrote before he started Ghost World was like a kind of bigger and more sprawling and had a lot more characters and it didn't really work. And so he, he narrowed things down the next time he was like, okay, I'm just going to focus on two characters. And he imagined their world as being like really modernist and almost futuristic, but like so deeply suburban. Mm -hmm. And so he, he kind of, I think it's kind of situated in his like the suburbs of Chicago where he grew up. Right. Um, which also coincidentally is also where Tavi Gevinson grew up, like Oak Park outside Chicago. Um, and there's like this really amazing long interview, um, between the two of them from like, I think it was the day that rookie launched like this really long Dan Klaus interview all about like, you wrote the teenage girls, you know, that Mm -hmm. like defined so many of
1: us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's so funny that, like, it's such a cultural touchstone, these two girls, and, like, I felt such a connection to it. But at the same time, like, just so many people did. Like, it's it's like you're not special.
2: Yeah, I'm waiting for the, you know... This 15 year olds On TikTok To be like Why is no one Talking about this film Oh
1: my god You should start that And then it will be On the Red Scare Reddit In uh, 15 years time
2: Dan Klaus I guess gets asked All the time Like how do you write How did you write These teenage girls Like you're you're a middle-aged man when you wrote Ghost Wild kind of thing. And he he just gave this really gorgeous answer. He said, it was very safe for me to say anything I wanted through Enid and through Rebecca, who, by the way, has about 20% of the important lines. But it was very liberating because teenage girls are allowed to struggle to define themselves and to overreact to everything in a way the rest of us aren't.
1: Yeah. I mean, essentially he's just written to almost male characters that have have been turned into girls to get away with it. Yeah. In part. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because he is Enid, but he's also Seymour, and Seymour doesn't exist in the novel. Absolutely. and that's like one of the major differences between graphic novel or what did Dan Klaus want us to call it a <laughs> uh narroglyphic picto assemblage. Um like an film. N- <laughs> an NPA for sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the difference between the film and NPA is that there is no Seymour you know in the NPA it's a mixture of these two characters one of whom is Dan Klaus, who makes an appearance in the in the graphic novel yeah
2: yeah so okay okay so we're at Seymour
1: oh what a complicated <laughs> goddamn character and i was watching it the other day going what would people make of this if this film came out right now mm. would people be more upset about this kind of weird will they, won't they thing between this like.
2: They absolutely would because people now are like narcs and they would say that Seymour's grooming Enid even though he's always like, go away,
1: leave me alone. Yeah, but then there is this moment where he's like, you know, I always, well, I've always thought about you in this way, and you're like, oh, good. Of course. You know, when you are a teenage girl or a girl in your 20s, and I don't know, things have hopefully changed a bit, who is into like the weirder side of stuff, like, or really interested in particularly old records. Like, I was a big time yeah. weirdo record collector. And often it's like some odd men who have the record stores and they really want to talk to you and they keep things aside for you. And they're like, I'm not talking like, like there are a lot of really great record stores that, uh, in Sydney that really helped me out as a teenager. <laughs> it's okay, Kate. You're not-, <laughs> I'm not talking about waterfront records for anyone listening. I'm talking about some others and they, yeah, I don't know. There was always this kind of, I got a very lecherous vibe or, you know, like they would, when they were giving their own seals, it would be like, oh, and this one I think you'll really dig. And then you'll find out that it's like a pornographic film. And you're like, oh, okay, that's what you are thinking of. I thought I was always like, oh, I thought we were friends. I thought we had the same taste. And it's like, Oh, you want to, yeah, you want me to watch this like weird Swedish porn from the 70s. And of course I would watch it, but like, you know.
2: Yeah. And there's always that undercurrent too. When you are a young woman in a space like a record store, it's like, I need to show that I know what I'm talking about or that I, that I belong here. Um, And yeah, there are obviously people who... Decide that you don't, or decide you know whether they will respect you or not. What's the line that when Enid and Rebecca go to the record collector party and they're sitting at the, the the image of Scarlett Johansson with her purse on her lap, sitting on the couch, and like one of the guys was he say like who brought the babes or like who brought the supermodels or something?
1: <laughs> oh my, totally. And then David Cross is in there and he tries to pick up. Of course he does. because yeah, he does. He tries yeah. to pick up. Scarlett Johansson and yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, art imitates life, I suppose.
2: There's this really fun little interview with um, Terry Zweigoff. I think from the, it's called like the making of ghost world. It's on YouTube in two parts and he's talking about the casting and he says like my wife, when she heard about Steve Buscemi being cast in this role was like, Oh, like he basically said, there's just something about Steve Buscemi that like women of all ages just, they just have a thing for him. And like, men would look at him and be like, really? But women are like, oh, yes. Steve Buscemi is hot. He's fucking hot. When he was in <laughs> The Sopranos, he was hot. When he was a firefighter on 9 11, he was hot. Like, he's,
1: yeah, parting glances. Oh my God.
2: He's made such good
1: choices. And he's made really good films also. And he's hot. And he's hot. Be weird, boys. No straight men are listening to this podcast. <laughs> No, they're not. But that weird combo of eye and lip—I mean,
2: yeah, it works. It does work. And I really love that the thing that you know, Seymour comes into Inan and Rebecca's life as this kind of victim of their fun, and they start to feel really bad, and they realize that there are real human people on the other end of their games and jokes, and then they see him road raging. And it's like, that's the moment where Enid's like, oh. I gotcha. Yeah, like this guy has something more going on than just being like a miserable little loser who I can, you know, kind of feel empathy for. Yeah,
1: she's like, Jesus. Yeah. But you know what? I think about his rant every single time someone is being really slow in front of my car. It is so bad, but all I hear is like, have another kid, why don't you? Yeah, Seymour's... Seymour gets it He gets it Seymour
2: in the blues club oh. Like Seymour on his dates Yeah Yeah i As The older I get <laughs> The more you Like
1: life comes at you fast You think you're an Enid <laughs> And then you look around And you're a Seymour Oh I'm a Seymour Yeah
2: Yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> Or oh, maybe I'm a Rebecca now Maybe I went from Enid to Rebecca I
2: mean visually you're Rebecca
1: Okay I mean I would love An ironing board that came out of the wall
2: yeah, same. Oh I've God, got nowhere to store an ironing board. That's sad. Isn't it? Um, okay, so we're still. How long have we been talking? We're still. I'm still remembering we haven't even covered Bob Balaban, who oh, okay. plays Balaban. Enid's dad. Love it. Um, Ileana Douglas, you mentioned, oh. who plays her art teacher.
1: Fucking hell. The art school stuff is so uh, <laughs> uh, funny. Like, there is not a day or maybe a week, where I do not think of mirror, father, mirror, and it has become like a shorthand for a very particular kind of, not even just a film, but like art in general. Yeah. This very like self-serious, pretentious, you know.
2: I remember thinking of it when I saw a, um, it's not Chris Ware, he's the cartoonist. Is it Chris Marks?
1: Yeah, Chris the, Marker. The filmmaker?
2: Chris Marks. The like experimental short filmmaker. Chris Marker?
1: Chris Marker. Let me just look that up.
2: Because I remember at uni we had to watch a silent film he made of his wife giving birth, um, and I just thought of Mirror, Father,
1: Mirror. Mirror, Father, Mirror. Yeah, Chris Marker.
2: Chris Marker,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, That sounds like we're saying Chris Maka, like it's an OC reference. (laughs) Chris Marker? (laughs) Yeah, Chris Marker. Uh, Yeah, Mirror, Father, Mirror. It's so funny. If you haven't seen it in a long while, I mean, I hope that you have the image in your head, but it's just like (laughs) someone walking up, like a black and white, it's like someone walking upstairs and then doll parts. (laughs) 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 My God, it makes me laugh. It's so perfectly made. You can just... See Terry Zweigoff having so much fucking fun. And Ileana
2: Douglas is just so perfectly cast in that role.
1: Hey, yeah, we've both watched this little video that's on the Criterion website. The women of Ghost World on working with Terry Zweigoff, which we'll link in the show notes. Um, and it has Ileana Douglas, Thorobich and Scarlett Johansson. It's like a one minute clip talking about their experience of working with off mm. Ileana Douglas, uh, she says, You feel that you can go out there and do something really wacky <laughs> and what a great experience that was. And that Scarlett Hansen talks about how, oh no, I think it's Thora Birch talks about how often like a first-time, like featured narrative director will be really nervous, or maybe it's Scarlett, saying that they will have like lots of ideas and they over-prepare, but then when Either Scarlett or Laura Birch would ask, like, well, what about this scene? What What's happening in this scene? He'd be like, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> yeah, That it sounds like this very open-ended sort of adventure. Collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of what makes it all tick. It doesn't feel like one man's or two men's vision in this film. Mm. Like, I don't know.
2: Yeah. Everyone also, like, really understands where the comedy is coming from, especially yeah. in the in the art school scenes, you know the the girl who's like it's a it's called found object <laughs> and you know she's just like reciting the Wikipedia for like different kinds of art and Ileana Douglas is loving it, and Enid is like she's struggling so hard and it's really it's really sad i feel really sad for her because she's doing her like fun little illustrations she's mm. like a little Cartoonist herself Dunn-Nots, of yeah. Don Knotts, and she's like, I just like him, yeah, but she doesn't have this like depressing, traumatic backstory to go with no, it. It's but- like being a MasterChef contestant,
1: <laughs> yeah. What's her food dream? That they she the work that she ends up making or displaying and that gets her into so much trouble. I mean, when she's making when she shows this work, which is like this uh, racist iconography. Uh, and she says it's about the whitewashing of racism in America or whatever she says, and then Ileana Douglas's character, like, goes ape for it and thinks it's so clever and cool. I remember, you know, like, and the the iconography is real. There really was a a restaurant in Seattle, I think, Mm. that did have that exact um, image, really racist image. Mm. Um, But then... She, the, she has this kind of comeuppance for it. Like she just hasn't thought it through. Like she thinks she's being like edgy and provocative and interesting, but actually, like didn't really take into account what that work really means and like mm. what her as a white girl doing it means and what it means for Seymour and his job because he still works for that company. Yeah. Like. Yeah. The, the, like there are real sort of consequences that she's not. It's like old enough or mature enough to be dealing with.
2: Yeah. It's like, it's another one of her little games. She's like, okay, well you want me to be like, quote unquote, an artist in the way that in a very prescriptive kind of way. And she, yeah, you're right. She doesn't really understand what that involves all of the the sketching that the Enid character is doing throughout the film, I kind of love that it's um, Robert Crumb and Aline Kaminsky Crumb's daughter who did all of the illustrations. They, like, Dan Klaus insisted he should not be doing the mm. drawings that come out of Enid's sketchbook, and I love that they, you know, Robert Crumb did the, um, the restaurant artwork that gets displayed, but then it's his daughter
1: who... Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. I think she did the art for... Um, Diary of a Teenage Girl as well. Oh, really? I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong. If those are your parents, you're I just mean, you're just drawing. Go for it. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, Brad Renfro as Josh. I haven't even talked about Brad Renfro. Oh, I mean, really. It's really sad. Sad tale that Brad Renfro tale. It's
2: in a weird little um, kind of funny twist. Um, some some synopses you find for Ghost World online. Bill him as the top yeah. star yeah. Like is really fucked <laughs> up way to get like young girls to see it or something. I don't know. They're not going to get much out of that. Are they? No. <laughs> well, I mean, selling it as like Birch and Steve Buscemi doesn't have the same appeal Maybe. as Brad Renfro in 2001. Yeah, Brad Renfro and like Scarlett
1: Johansson. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, can we talk a little bit about the soundtrack Please, um, I mentioned the Muhammad Rafi song, but, oh, God, the soundtrack is so incredible. And so good. Apparently, Terry Zwagoff, who's like a big-time record collector and like 78 blues collector in particular, he when he first got the film greenlit, they, investors really wanted it to have like a big teen pop soundtrack uh-huh. and that he found that the way he could push against it Was by having the Seymour character be a record collector Mm. Because then there was a reason to feature all these incredible blues songs And so that was how he actually pushed against it
2: Terry Terry, he knows what he's doing (laughs) He's in his little, he's got a band too With Robert Crumb, R Crumb and his cheap suit (laughs) serenaders
1: Yeah, and they show a record of theirs in one of the scenes Oh really? And Super Shammy says, like, oh, the second album's not very good (laughs) (laughs) This is great. Do you think it's a kind of funny, weird thing that we are like quite, you know, in love with this film and it is the story of Teen Girls as seen by two men?
2: Um, I mean, in a way, yes, but also the, the sorry to all other men to quote <laughs> to misquote Kiki Palmer, but like they did a really great job. You know They They did And there There clearly isn't Well I mean Dan Klaus has said That he He modelled As well as Enid being Kind of like a You know A Simulacrum To say another word That usually I just Write down or read Of himself Like there's also a lot of his wife in that character and, you know, he's like, my wife was like a weirdo who like drove a hearse and like, you know, wore wacky clothes and did all this enid stuff.
1: Because it- Enid drives a hearse in the graphic novel. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but she also, you know, is modeled on like just a bunch of women that he knew growing up. So like I guess the words coming out of her mouth were often his, but she's like an assemblage of all these different women in his life. And I guess Terry Zweigoff understood them well enough, you know.
1: Yeah, Zweigoff um, was interviewed in Vanity Fair and uh, he is talking about, like, who the film's for or what people should get from this or what he, you know, has done with this. And he said, maybe you'll meet a fan who says that movie opened their eyes to our crass society. I should be so lucky. If I've ruined just one person's life, my mission has succeeded. (laughs) I love it. Oh, they're such little misanthropes. Oh, I love it, love it, love, love it. them.
2: So there is a scene, I mentioned that Dan Klaus, you know, put a lot of his wife into the Enid character. There was an a little anecdote that he told about his wife going to a sex shop for the first time and just being kind of, like, obsessed with the fun shoes that she found there. And the sex shop scene is... It's so funny and it's like it leads us to the most iconic Enid look, which is the kind of like latex Batwoman mask. Um, But in that scene, I was so tickled to watch it back now and realize that Will Forte has like a little very brief like half second cameo as one of the what as enid calls them like creeps <laughs> like <laughs> just just shopping for their pornos mm-hmm. and then a girl comes in and laughs at them
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's funny that one of the guys in it is also was cast as the principal in the opening scene but terry zwagoff didn't mean to do that yeah. it was just pointed out to him after that he'd accidentally cast this guy twice and it it,
2: it makes it so much creepier yeah it does yeah. <laughs> he's like he's creepy without even realizing
1: yes, it's so good seymour
2: being truly tortured and in hell during that scene
1: is also very funny oh yeah just put it back put it back put it back look get out of here <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, B.L., we need to talk about the ending. Mm-hmm. What? What's your take? My take was
2: always that Enid got on the bus and it was kind of, uh, she doesn't know where it's going. You know, it's this this decommissioned bus route that she believes doesn't exist anymore. And then when she realises that it can still take people out of that town, it's like it represents like possibility to me because – you know, Enid and Rebecca were a romance. Like I see them as kind of this romance, the the scene of them sitting at a bus stop together and then they just kind of hold hands and like linger on that. That's like a devastating end to their relationship and Rebecca kind of sensing that Enid's not coming to move into that house. Mm -hmm. And so when Enid packs her little bag and gets on the bus, it's kind of like a fresh start or a reset somewhere because she's kind of expired every Potential that she could find in that town. Um, but not everyone thought of it that way. Mm. How did you see the end?
1: Well, I was really shocked that people thought that she was going to uh, experience like a death by suicide. Yeah. And that was shocking
2: to me that that was a reading of it. Same. Yeah. I, had,
1: I did not pick that up. And uh, maybe no. it's because of the graphic novel. But that does really not seem like the ending of the graphic novel. And if you're, like, familiar with Dan Klaus' work, mm. like, I just wouldn't have that reading because yeah. he's quite, I don't know, like, if she was going to do that, we'd see it in the novel, I he's guess. He's, like, morbid in other ways too. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I was really surprised when I found that out. Like, I think I found out years later. Like, I didn't even have friends that thought, that that was what she was going to do. And that's what the bus, the decommissioned bus symbolised. I just thought she was like getting out of Dodge essentially. Because she talks to Seymour about like her, you know, the thing that she fantasises about is to get on a bus to somewhere she doesn't know and just have a whole different life. And Mm -hmm. I just thought that's what she's doing. She's leaving this world as she knows it. Like the town as she knows it, rather not the world. Uh, That she is mm, uh, like, she's just decided to get out. Like she's gonna do something else, somewhere else.
2: Yeah, the things that were tying her there aren't aren't, are gone. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, So I was really, I was really quite surprised Mm. by that. Um, But apparently, like the industry execs that were working on the film. Did not like the ending at all um, Apparently And I'm quoting uh, Terry's Wygoff. One executive suggested we have a bus at the end With the destination art school Spelled oh. out on it <laughs> Another suggested a double wedding Where Enid marries Seymour And Rebecca marries Josh it's a miracle any good films get through these days. Truly. Considering all the commercial concessions they try and foist on you. Truly. Isn't that it? That's so great. Like, that would
2: be... It's like when we talked about Ladies and Gentlemen the Fabulous Stains. Like, the, the what the executives wanted that film to end on, we find so depressing. So
1: depressing, yeah. And they couldn't get out of it. They just yeah. did that ending. Yeah. It reminded me of the great fake-out ending scene of Clueless, where it opens on a wedding and you're like... Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen clueless but you're a loser see clueless already uh when you see like the Cher character and you like at the wedding you're like oh no she's marrying Josh her like stepbrother or half brother yeah. or whatever and then she's like oh, as if I'm only like, really 16 great. yeah it's really good <laughs> yeah anyway um
2: I've got the Dan Klaus quote for, about the ending you had the Terry Swygoff one he said You have to, and this is in the interview in the Daniel Klaus reader. He said, you have to try to find a way to live. That's what Ghost World is about. Enid finds a way to get up every morning and she always finds something to do. That's all you can hope for. He talks about how like irony is like David Letterman. Like when you're ironic, there's like nowhere to go from there. Like nothing can touch you because you're you keep everything so like at a distance and you remove yourself and put yourself like on a pedestal above everything. And he said Enid um in you know in comparison to that quote finds a way to electrify things. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it just really made me like see her so differently to be like, yeah, she's she's grown up in this suburban place. She finds it so constricting and like limiting. And so she just takes what she can get from it Mm -hmm. and that's all she can hope for.
1: Yeah. I, did you have this thing growing up in Bundaberg? Like I grew up in like a really small suburb in outer Sydney, like Northwest suburbs of Sydney. That was truly just like a very suburban, very, very suburban place. And I remember being, like, that sort of ghost world age of, like, 17, 18, maybe 16 of having some kind of freedoms of being able to, like, do what I wanted, like, after school or on weekends or whatever and just, like, walking around, like, looking for weird things happening in the town and, of course, there was nothing so you end up making it up and it's like with Enid and Rebecca when they see two slightly odd people in the diner and they're like oh I bet they're satanists yeah but that's sort of like just wanting your small town to have anything interesting going on yeah absolutely like when I got old enough and when I made friends with people
2: who went to a different school who I I think there was an element of like oh you don't know me in the day to day. Like I can be, you know, a fresh version of myself with Mm. you. I just remember this period of my teens where we would go to this kind of just like a little sandwich shop in the main street of town. There are like two, two main streets in Bundaberg, the town that I grew up in. And it's this place that had been there my whole life. And we would just sit out the back and order like chips and gravy. And we'd sit there for hours. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, A place where nobody knew us, and like you know, we we weren't like in our school uniforms. We didn't have anywhere to be, just that kind of like laziness of being a teenager. But also, as soon as I could, like I moved to Melbourne two weeks after I turned eighteen, and it was truly like you got on that decommissioned bus to Melbourne. I get got on that one way flight, you Mm -hmm. know, yeah, and and that was it. You know, I'd visited here twice and the second time was when I found out I got into uni here and I was like, okay, I've got my, I've got my escape plan. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, that's the way to do it. It's so real. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. I remember those things of being like in like the supermarket or something with my friends, like late on a Friday night and like not in your uniform and like not with your family and just that feeling of being like, Oh, adulthood, I can do it, whatever I want. And yeah. And yeah, I was like, get me out. Get me a, out. It's like Get a, me out of the suburbs. A driver's license is step one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I disappeared very heavily into like the zine world. That yeah. was like my, like how you mentioned, you meet people outside of school and then you can like not reinvent yourselves, but it's like, oh, you don't have the baggage. Yeah. Of, yeah. Anyway.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You like become known by what you're interested in.
1: Yeah, and I think that was such a big part of it as well, and that's, like, the timing of this film and the, and the graphic novel and everything of, you know, you'd wear your hair a different way or, like, a badge or whatever, and it was such a – like, I think that all that has very much changed because of the internet, not to sound like full grandma. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's better or worse, just that it's really different. It's like you yep. don't see – like a kid on a bus and you're like, oh, you've got that written on like your canvas school bag yeah. that you got from the army disposal store. Yeah. Like I know what that lyric is. Mm-hmm. Like we should be friends. Yes. It's very
2: different. Yes. Dan Klaus even talks about this, like a generation before, I guess where he was like um, he says to the person interviewing him in the Daniel Klaus reader, like I could mention a musician to you and, and tonight you would go online and learn more about them than I will ever know mm. because it was such a manual process for me to be interested in something. The way I grew up was like such a time consuming process, but you, I valued it so much. Like I earned all of that information. Yeah. You know? yeah.
1: yeah. In that way of being able to just look anything up, but that you couldn't back in the day. Um, I remember not understanding lyrics to this one Bikini Kill song. I think it was Thurston Hearts The Who. And it was like Everett True, Who Are You? And I was like, I don't know who this Everett True guy is. Yeah. And I didn't have friends at that point who could help me out with this knowledge. I had not yet met my <laughs> zine community
2: properly. You didn't have Google. No.
1: And so, like, I wrote into, like, some American zine and, like, asked them and it was like Bunny Hop or something or anyway. And... And my question got printed with answer and like a brief rundown what it would be like a Wikipedia synopsis yeah. in a zine, like six months later or eight months later or something. And I was like, oh, right, cool, oh, thank you. You earned that information. Isn't <laughs> that fun? So weird. I love knowing that. The nerd. <laughs>
2: Jinxie, it's time for our See is All About Ghost World. Yeah, um, you must have a lot. I want to hear them. I think we both have a lot. I mean, I mentioned it before, um, an interview between Tavi Gevinson and Dan Klaus that I really adore. Um, he talks a lot about that idea of, Enid figuring out a way to make her life more exciting just by imagining the things around her being charged with, I'm quoting here, being charged with some kind of mystery and energy that's possibly not actually there, but she's giving it to them. That idea of like, you know, imagination in the suburbs. And it's a really sweet interview because at the very end he's, and this really you know, puts it in a specific time and place. He says, there's this new show on HBO by Mike White called Enlightened ah! with Laura Dern. It's so subtle that it's not even a comedy. It's so close to just being like a really unbearable soap opera or something, <laughs> but it's just over the edge of being comedy. And I find myself laughing my head off at it without really understanding why.
1: Oh, that's <laughs> so good. It's like
2: 2011, December, 2011, an interview with Dan Klaus oh, on how, Rookie.
1: How great. How old would Talvi have been then?
2: I was 21, so she would have been, that was the first year of Rookie. She would have been like, she's seven or eight years younger than me. So maybe 14.
1: Wow. I love the idea of a actual teen girl who was like very hip at that point already. Yes. yes. Um, hipper than I could ever have hoped to have been. Uh, yeah. Like interviewing him about this. That's yeah. so great. I can't wait to read that. Yeah. I've got a million like good interviews and stuff with them but let's start with um, Ione Sky, the wonderful Ione Sky made a short film in uh, 2011 also so when Tarby was interviewing Dan Klaus, <laughs> uh, she made a short film based on Ice Haven, which was uh, a short kind of comic by a graphic novel by Daniel Klaus. Uh, It's called David Goldberg. It features Jenna Malone and Mm. um, was produced by Ben Lee. And uh, it's really great. It's up on Vimeo. Uh, You can still watch it. So we'll link that. And that also brings me to, I never saw it, but Shia LaBeouf made a short film very famously that got into Cannes and uh, he completely plagiarized Dan Klaus and and then was, you know, outed for it yeah and then he went to like these extreme lengths to kind of apologize in the most dickish way like how surprising for shayla yeah what a shock but one of them was he put up like skywriting all over like over like santa monica or something that was like apologizing to dan claus what yeah like what an absolute asshole
2: i i mentioned her before but a very broad sea also to seek out the work of Aline Kaminsky crumb. Um, she is kind of always described as just the wife of Robert crumb and like also a cartoonist, but her work is like so specifically her own. She died this past November. So there have been like quite a few tributes and like remembrances of her that are giving her her due. Um, and her work was like really internal and messy and very much about like, existing as a woman in the world, you know, being a mother and a wife, but also an artist and, you know, kind of leads into like the abject, like very funny. Like I adore her work. She's, she's so brilliant. Yeah.
1: I, yeah. I love her work so much. Mm. Um, that brings me to my next see also she is the idol or muse of sorts in a uh, diary of a teenage girl, the film that came out in 2015 uh, that's based on a graphic novel by Phoebe Glockner. Um, it's was made by Marielle Hemmer, who I think is a really fantastic director. Mm. She also made uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? One of our faves oh. and A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood. Um, but this one is about this teenage girl, Phoebe Glockner, who's played by Belle Pauly and about how... Big Eyes Belle Pauly. Um, exactly. She's very graphic novel looking and uh, <laughs> she has a kind of relationship with her mum's boyfriend. Her mum is played by uh, Kristen Wiig. Anyway, I've thought it was a great, great film that was sort of maligned unfairly when it came out, I yeah, think. Yeah, right. Um, but it's it's really great and the actual graphic novel is incredible but in it she idolises uh, Aline Kaminsky-Crumb and mm. she kind of m- is mentored a little bit by her in it. So it's, it's a good one. Oh,
2: cool. I never saw that but also didn't know it was a – um, a comic adaptation. Um, another young female cartoonist I want to recommend people check out is Tilly Waldron. Um, I interviewed her maybe like eight years ago after I first discovered her work, probably through like Tumblr or something. Um, and she was like a teenage girl cartoonist then she's now like, she's, she's been like the youngest recipient of like the, you know, like comic artist award. I think it's called the Eisner award. Um, she had a bestseller in her book on a sunbeam. She's like only 26 now. And she's been doing this for like a solid decade. She's really brilliant. My favorite of her works is, um, this book called, I love this part. And it's about, um, a relationship between two teenage girls, kind of in the suburbs, like if you love Ghost World, you're probably, it, Tilly Waldron is like much more sentimental and much less like caustic than Enid and Rebecca, mm-hmm. but it's like um, if they were like modern and soft and, and lesbians.
1: That sounds great. Yeah. My interest is piqued. Uh, I really love the work of Julie DeSette. Uh She used to publish with Drawn and Quarterly. She had this incredible graphic novel called My New York Diary that I was deeply obsessed with at the time. It came out in probably two thousand ish. I feel like my knowledge of that world—I was very into like the underground comics, like the fanographics Drawn and Quarterly mm-hmm. vibe—but my knowledge is. Slim to none at this point. Um, can I just say, yeah. Julie DeSette also can be linked to Bikini Kittle in that her she's mentioned in Hot Topic, the La Tigre song. Huh. Julie DeSette. Yeah. I was
2: like, the, this name is familiar to me. Yep. <laughs> in a much more complimentary way than uh, Everett True.
1: <laughs> yeah
2: this is kind of like a complicated see, also or like a long winding one, but you know, there are references in the ghost world comic to sassy magazine and Dan Klaus has said in an interview that like Eden and Rebecca hate sassy, but they would love like a Japanese ripoff of sassy magazine. <laughs> and you know, he's talked a lot about, um, yeah, they're reading
1: fruits. Yes,
2: yes, exactly. Um, and they've talked a lot. He's talked a lot about, um, Ghost World being compared to Daria and there's this one episode of Daria that's, it's iconic, it's called The Lost Girls and it's from season three, it's season three episode five of Daria and it basically is this character very... Not thinly veiled version of Jane Pratt, who comes to Lawndale because Darius won a writing competition through her magazine, which is called Val. And she's Val and she edits her magazine and, like, is constantly name dropping celebrities that she's friends with. She's like, and then Drew called and she said this. And then I said, I've got lunch with, you know, whoever else is a celebrity in like the late 90s. Um, And it's so good. There's like, you know, Daria is being her Daria self and Val is... You know, clinging to youth. She's using the word edgy to describe everything. Um, <laughs> she's named a magazine after herself. It's important to note that this was like two years after Jane Magazine launched. Amazing. Um, but there is a really fun podcast that Dory Shafru used to um, do with BuzzFeed called Rerun. And every episode, she would have a different guest on who would talk about one episode of TV that they loved. And Aminatu So, um, formerly of the Call Your Girlfriend podcast. Came on to talk about this specific episode Oh, that's so great Daria, which is really fun
1: I have, I must have seen it, but I don't remember it I need to re-watch that I'll loan you my Daria box set Oh, please We can watch it
2: on our region-free <laughs> DVD players um, It famously, the Daria DVDs took so long to be released Side note, because they couldn't get rights to any of the MTV music <laughs> And so just, if you're listening to If you're watching old Daria on DVDs It has none of the real music
1: that's so interesting. Yeah. Mm.
2: Yeah. It's like sound alikes.
1: Uh, that kind of works. Yeah. Kind of works, Adaria. Um, I've just got some other kind of comic book, graphic novel films. Oh, if yeah. If you're interested in Ghost World and that world in general, of course, there's Terry Zwigoff's Crumb, uh, American Splendor. We've mentioned both of those. But Funny Pages is a film that A24 released Last year in the States. Uh, we played it at MIFF. I'm hoping. We're not getting it here, are we? I don't know. Yeah. But it's it's made by Owen Klein. It's a really great so film. So good. felt very Zweig Oh, the spirit, the spirit is alive in Owen Klein. Truly. And it's like you can, there's this sort of. Uh, the opening
2: scene alone oh, yeah. is like, is this from Crumb?
1: It really is. Yeah. There is this something about like. Funny Pages, Swygoff's films, and John Waters' films. In that, these are films completely made for character actors. Everyone has an interesting face on camera, and I love it. Yeah, <laughs> funny,
2: funny pages. The faces in that movie. The fo- oh god! Oh yeah! Oh boy! Oh
1: boy! Uh, and you feel that they're not being mocked. They're like being revered in this way. I love it. It's oh, like Mike White's, you know, yes. Mike White's over too.
2: Owen Klein is a Nepo baby. We
1: stand. Oh, yeah, it's fine. He's <laughs> fine. He gets <laughs> passed because Funny Pages was so good. Yeah. And then, yeah, Diary of a Teenage Girl.
2: Love that. And my final one is just the book I've been mentioning every two minutes. This episode, the Daniel clowes Reader. It's got a critical edition of Ghost World in it, which involves like – an appendix of every song, um, poster, like every little background detail in the comic has been kind of like described and explained to you. So you don't have to write into a zine to ask what it <laughs> means. Um, there's also an annotated version of the comic. So it'll be like panel two frame three, you know, like it describes, um, all the references. It's like so nerdy, so brilliant. There's essays about Dan Klaus's influence, big interview with him um i've quoted half of it in this episode it's edited by ken periel and highly recommend
1: cool i need that yeah you, you can make that right. in my life <phone rings> well this has been really funky this has been a funky and edgy episode <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thank you so much for listening. Um, we'll be back with regular episodes and more poodles coming down the pipe. As always, if there is something that you think would be our vibe for a poodle, send us a DM. But as we explained at the top, it's like a real energy with the poodles, so please don't be offended if we don't if we don't dedicate a whole episode to something that you suggest. Um, but you can find us on Instagram at see also podcast, And please pop over to Apple Podcasts if you like this episode to give us a five-star rating, write a little review. We love to read
1: them. Yeah, please do. And thanks as ever to our friends Harvey Sutherland for our theme music and Samuel Hodge for our imagery.
0: Bye. See ya.
2: Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.